Yeah, Duncan Green here uh, with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm looking out at this horrible, grey, drizzly day. Summer is over. Autumn is here. Winter is coming. The nights are closing in. It's all bad. So never mind. Let's um, crack on with a blog and see if we can't cheer you up a bit. Actually, I can't cheer you up a bit because the first uh, blog of the week was links I liked. And I'm increasingly thinking that there should be more links I disliked or links I hated. Anyway, um, the latest is extraordinary decision by the UK government that um, if you're double jabbed, if you've had two vaccinations, uh, you can come into Britain without quarantining, providing you don't come from a poor country. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you've had the same vaccines, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, whatever it is, um, they're not letting you come in without quarantine if you come from a poor country, which it's hard to see that as anything other than blatant discrimination slash racism and people are getting very angry. It actually applies to white people in poor countries as well as brown people in poor countries. So I suppose you could argue that it, it, it could be even more discriminatory, but um, that would be a bit of a stretch. Uh, I have various other posts, uh, links on links I liked, but I, I thought I'd start with that one. The second post of the week was um, a puff for this lecture series, which I helped organise with James Putzel at the LSE, called Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice. And basically, thanks to COVID, our lives have become a lot more fun. Before COVID, we used to have to you know, persuade people to come and give lectures in a lecture hall, old, you know, um, in the traditional style, uh, which required them to come down to Aldwych, where the LSE is, on a Friday evening, yeah, we'd buy them dinner afterwards, but it really wasn't much of a compensation. Now we're doing them online. We've been able to open them up to YouTube, and this year we're doing podcasts uh, straight afterwards as well. Um, so we've massively increased the audience, and we've massively increased the availability of top speakers because they had to do it from their homes. So we've got a global um, uh, opportunity to get the best people. Um, so we kicked off um, last week with, um, or this week, depending on how you measure it, with a panel on Afghanistan and the future of women's rights in Afghanistan. Next week, we've got, um, uh, and these are on Fridays from four till six UK time. So I think it's a perfect opportunity to bunk off a bit early from your week and enjoy some really good brain food. Next week, uh, we've got Harjun Chang. And Harjun wants to lecture about the most famous Korean film in recent years, Parasite. But being Harjun, he wants to look at the economics of Parasite and in particular what it says about inequality in South Korea. So I think that's going to be absolutely great. Um, after that, uh, the following week, we've got Gabrielle Palmer and Branko Milanovic discussing. Uh, this is Gabrielle's. Uh, Gabrielle is the lecturer and, and Branko's being a discussant. Gabrielle's topic is why the rich stay rich no matter what. And then the week after that, so Gabrielle Palmer's a famous Chilean economist. The week after that, we've got uh, Claire Short on what's wrong with aid. And so it continues. So the emphasis has been on getting really top speakers from around the world, introducing a bit more diversity than you often see at uh, in terms of LSE lecturers and making sure they're a lot of fun and, and available. So I think it's going to be a great uh, series. The numbers went up sharply last year and I think they'll go up even further this year. The third post was social protection and COVID-19, the emerging story of what worked where and what it all means for future crises. <clears throat> and this is one of those nice occasions when you come across a very gifted natural blogger, someone who can write in a conversational style, who doesn't get all caught up in 
um, academic or NGO jargon who just writes well. And this was Valentina Barker. So Valentina's the team lead for something which has a horrible name, the FCDO slash GIZ slash DFAT funded space service. And what that means is the aid agencies from the UK, Germany and Australia have got together to fund a, um, a sort of think tank on social protection. Um, <clears throat> and so I'm actually going to read it out because I think it's really good. So COVID-19 caught us all by surprise. The social protection sector was no exception. Often dismissed before the pandemic, for example, it is primarily for the poor and does not really concern us. Social protection became recognised as a crucial tool to cushion its socio-economic impacts. We are only a job loss away from needing support. As us geeks like to cite, between March 2020 and May 2021, a total of 3,333 social protection measures have been planned or implemented in 222 countries. Those numbers are slightly suspicious, um, but um, uh, 3333 and 222. I'm only waiting for 666, but anyway, let's carry on. But this blog is not about the stats, it's about the so what. Was this search so impressive? And by what standards anyway? How did countries' responses differ? And what does all this mean going forwards? Answering these questions requires a rewind to March 2020, when we were all navigating in the dark. No one knew exactly what was coming, but we had some, inverted commas, certainties. We knew what we wanted to avoid and broadly where we wanted to get to, including some tactics that might help us get there, drawn from experience managing past shocks that were not radically different. The 2008 financial crisis, large-scale humanitarian emergencies, etc. So the question becomes, what were these certainties, confession my team, this is Valentina's team, internally called the mantras, and how did the global social protection response fare against them? And then she gives us the five mantras that her team talked about a lot. Mantra one, ensuring existing social protection systems do not collapse when people need them the most. In a crisis, everything needs to change for everything to stay the same, quoting uh, the leopard by Giuseppe de Lampedusa. Um, routine delivery risked enhancing contagion. Routine capacity was swiftly overwhelmed. Scores of countries contagion-proofed their operations. Those that could strengthen digital platforms for registration and cashless digital payments, while clawing in staff from other sectors. Just imagine that the UK redeployed over 10,000 staff to work on the Universal Credit Programme. Where these small yet fundamental measures were not prioritised, things went, things went rotten fast. In, the, in Uganda, the development of the COVID-19 standard operation, operating procedures took almost three months and payments to existing recipients were paused between March and June 2020. Across the globe, many school feeding programmes temporarily collapsed except where explicit measures were taken to drastically change the approach to delivery, e.g. via take-home rations or cash-equivalent payments. So mantra two, timeliness and simplicity above everything. Good enough over perfect. Humanitarians and disaster risk managers teach us that shocks can turn into disasters if they are mismanaged, with success hinging on providing support swiftly before people resort to negative coping strategies with destructive long-term consequences. They've been rightly pushing for anticipatory action as the new frontier. In this context, it's fundamental to remember that social protection is the most anticipatory of anticipatory actions. In countries where a high percentage of people were already supported prior to COVID-19, 
timeliness of response wasn't even an issue. And study after study is now showing the importance of that ex-ante protection. It is similarly important to reinforce the role of contributory social insurance, which is intrinsically shock responsive and set up to support those in need, when in need, fast. We gave unemployment insurance and wage subsidies for granted in high, high income countries, but these were not an option for the vast majority of citizens in low income countries. That needs to change. This leaves us with most countries scrambling to expand to large swathes of never before reached populations, informal workers in particular. Who performed best? Beyond political will and financing, those that could rely on strong existing delivery systems and capacity on one side, while keeping eligibility simple on the other. On average, evidence from 53 countries shows that government cash responses were paid at 107 days after the first case reported in each country, with faster performances mediated by the factors such as using existing data and relying on e-payments, electronic payments. No response was perfect, but there are lots of good enough examples. Countries using simple criteria matched with digital registration. Uh, examples they give from South Africa, Namibia, Togo, Pakistan and so on. Mantra three, thinking comprehensively across all population groups uh, uh, and risks faced while ensuring adequacy of support. Did this happen? Not really, not enough. The truth is countries did what they could depending on what they had. Targeting design decisions were very strongly constrained by the pot of money available and what was feasible from a very practical perspective. While great efforts were made to swiftly consolidate evidence on who was most affected and how, and some countries embarked on important micro-simulation exercises to understand how best to target social assistance, very few policy choices were fully data-informed, inclusive, comprehensive and adequate. Common targeting choices included previously uncovered urban areas, select categories of workers, for example the tourism industry, or those who are anyway considered poor and vulnerable. Adequate transfer values, on the other hand, were often deprioritized vis-a-vis -vis coverage targets so that people received little, late and not for long, an average of uh, three months. Once again, countries with the stronger underlying systems and capacity to make informed decisions while balancing complex trade-offs, fared best. So there's a big message here. Get your social protection in place during peacetime and then it'll absolutely come to the rescue when you hit a big shock like COVID. Mantra four. Coordination across social protection and humanitarian actors will play a critical role in the response, focusing on joint outcomes. This did happen, or at least more than we've ever seen before. It would require a blog of its own, but for those who are interested, here are some links. Mantra five, act short term, think long term. Use the response to think about the future. So this is critical juncture thinking here. A good one to close on, yet not enough evidence as yet. The COVID-19 pandemic has definitely exposed existing gaps and reinforced the mantra that strengthening systems now, while investing in preparedness, can help prevent future shocks from becoming future crises. Yet the jury is still out on what that means for each and every country in the audience poll from the ILO high-level webinar is not too encouraging. And she's got some results from that, that, uh, that audience poll. Summary, this is not about tinkering at the margins with some business process engineering. It's about our view of society. So I thought that was a great, one of the best things I've read on social protection, 
how you design systems that can help people quickly in a crisis and uh, lots of links to the countries that have done it, got it right or, or got it better at least. Thank you, Valentina Barker. Final post of the week. I went back. I've still got a couple of posts in the Bukavu series, which is a this series of posts I posted a lot during September of um, posts by Congolese researchers and some Belgian colleagues of theirs on what it's like being a Congolese researcher in a supply chain for a knowledge supply chain, if you like, which is heavily weighted in favour of the people with the money and the power in the north and tends to treat research national researchers as research assistants and basically like dirt. So this one's actually um, called When the Room is Laughing from Female Researcher to Prostitute Researcher and it's by Anne Ansoms and Irene Bahati. Working in a conflict zone is difficult for any researcher but for female researchers the security challenges are even more complex. First of all Local actors don't always know how to interpret the role of a female researcher, as that role often lies outside their reference frame for female professions. Yet it's even more difficult when the role attributed to the female researcher is that of a prostitute. We have both faced this challenge. Being portrayed as a prostitute researcher is intended sometimes as a joke, other times as a threat. And it's done by a number of actors, those in the research field, politically engaged actors who want to discredit the researchers' analyses, and sometimes even members of the academic community. Let's take some specific examples. In an earlier blog, Irene Bahati, one of the co-authors, analysed how miners in the field in Mukungwe, in eastern DRC, welcomed female researchers with comments such as, there, the new prostitutes are arriving. Like Irene, several other female researchers who have worked in conflict zones in eastern DRC and elsewhere have heard similar or worse comments. This type of joking and ridicule puts women in a vulnerable position because it carries an implicit threat. At the same time, the researcher can't adopt an avoidance strategy since the profession itself involves interacting with actors in the field. Requesting access or information while interacting with participants in the field can lead to a request for something in exchange. One day, one of us had to negotiate the integrity of her body with a soldier in the field who was demanding her services. A woman researcher. Well then, if you're searching for something, I'm going to help you find it. Getting out of such a situation requires a lot of rhetorical effort and strategic humour, but it may also result in lingering frustration and even trauma. Along with difficult encounters in the field, there are other times when the prostitute researcher image can be evoked. When the researcher's analyses don't please certain actors in a policy discussion, portraying her as a prostitute researcher is a powerful way to delegitimise her professional qualities. One of us experienced several of these incidents during her research, especially when her analyses of official policies were considered too critical or not critical enough. Anonymous calls or messages accused her for the way in which you prostitute yourself to please the other side, or, or adopted less polite and more explicit phrasing. Even the academic community can be implicated in reinforcing the vulnerability of female researchers by portraying the researcher as a prostitute. Sometimes these are flagrant incidents. When a woman has a career in a field dominated by men, such as the field of conflict studies, being portrayed as a prostitute can be used to discredit the researcher's abilities. For example, we've had reports of incidents in which a female researcher was interrogated by her academic colleague, asking her who she slept with to get ahead so quickly. In other cases, colleagues were asked why they wanted a man's profession and if it was because they wanted to be with men all the time. 
Although these types of incidents are rare, they're rather telling about the manner in which women can be viewed and treated in their research careers. In most cases, the pressure on the female researcher is more subtle, but nevertheless tangible. Within the academic community, doing research in and about conflict zones, there's very little space for the female researcher to share experiences, exchange ideas, and discuss the research challenges associated with her gender. When the topic is brought up, there are often two reactions. First, when testifying about stories when one was portrayed as a prostitute researcher, people often laugh and trivialise the matter. This reaction, often well-intentioned but nevertheless tactless, pushes women to instinctively play down the incident in order not to appear weak. The second reaction is to question the place of women in researching conflict zones and the additional security challenges associated. If it's so dangerous and difficult, maybe women shouldn't engage in these research areas. Maybe some research domains are simply reserved for men. Once again, such a reaction puts the female researcher in a defensive position. Female researchers need particular forms of exchange that allow for sharing experiences and developing strategies to deal with the specific challenges women face. There's a great need for a space where the discussion goes beyond sharing the little anecdote of the day and giving the room a good laugh. A space in which women can explain what it means to barricade themselves in their room or wrap themselves up in three layers of clothing to make a possible unwrapping as difficult as possible. A space in which women can discuss how to respond to explicit or implicit intimidation in order to destabilise her morale by attacking her legitimacy as a researcher. A platform where female researchers without a voice can open up and share the challenges and burdens of research. That is a powerful description of a totally unacceptable and awful situation. And I hope that research commissioners and institutions start thinking about what they do to support female researchers in some of these dangerous places and, and how they sometimes contribute to the dangers. Sorry, gloomy note, gloomy day. Have a good weekend. I'll be back next week. Bye.